Hey, welcome to the Art Condition Podcast, a weekly show that will discuss the business, community, and often undiscussed stress and mental health concerns of being a professional artist or even a serious hobbyist. I'm Joby. I've been in the tattoo and illustration professions for 25 years. My co-host is Moose, a data analyst, social media manager, and art agent. If you enjoy the content, please consider visiting the Patreon page and the show notes to help support the effort. Or if that's not an option, please like, subscribe, leave a good review, or just share with your friends. And definitely go visit the links of our guests on this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great day. This week, we are talking to Larry Elmore. This episode doesn't need a lot of introduction. Larry himself needs none. If you're a fan of fantasy art, the chances are good that you know who he is. If you can imagine yourself when you were 12 and you remember how inspired you were by the art that accompanied whatever form of entertainment you enjoyed most, you have an idea of how special it is for me to talk to Larry. Larry is one of the reasons I became a serious artist, and he remains a huge inspiration. Going into this episode, we knew that we would be short on time, so we kept it pretty relaxed and just let Larry tell his stories, which is exactly what you want from someone who has been in the business of fantasy illustration for as long as he has. One quick technical note, I apologize in advance on Larry's behalf. His studio was undergoing a renovation while we were talking to him, so you will hear some banging in the background. It's not too bad, though, and I don't think it takes away from the conversation too much. Let's listen. And yeah, and we'll say that we're on. And I will say to you, Larry, thank you so much for being here. This is an incredible honor. Never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that I would be sitting down to have a podcast interview with Larry Elmore. Uh, I don't. I don't want to blow too much smoke you know or do too much fanboying but i have to address the elephant in the room for me that this is this is a this is a real treat so thank you and thank you that always embarrassed me (laughs) well that's all right that's all right um just want to address the noise in the background uh for anybody that's going to be listening to this after the fact you're going through a pretty decent sized studio renovation so there's might be a couple bangs and uh booms in the background um but uh you know we have to we have to get it in where we can and appreciate it that much more that in the midst of a a hectic turnover in your studio you're you're giving us some some time to do this so uh if we can jump right into it um if anybody has been living under a rock for the past 40 years can you Tell us a, a little bit about yourself, uh, who you are, and your a brief history well, of your career. I live in Kentucky, and I moved back to the town, the county I was born in. And my family, on my, both my mother's and father's side, has been here probably some, some of them relatives have been here since Kentucky, some before Kentucky was a state in this same area. So it is home, home, home. Um, I know the, the, the county pretty well and um, um, know a lot of people. And I just grew up. Uh, my dad got tuberculosis after World War II. And, uh, and, but he survived it. But he almost died several times. But he died a few years ago at 93. So he done all right. <laughs> but 
but at that time when I was born, the day I was born, my mom, they, dad had to go to a TB tuberculosis sanitarium. That was a place where they treated you and really you go there till you die. And um, so since it was related to World War II, mom got a check for like $50 a month, something like that, $55 a month. And we lived on that out in the country, little house. And at that time, electricity in Kentucky, this is 1940. 1950, uh, the county had run out, run, ran electricity out into the county. And so we lived in a house like other neighbors with no electricity, no running water. And we learned to entertain ourselves. We would go to a clay, clay bank. The, the soil here is a lot of clay and, and get clay and make sculpt toys and animals and pass away the time. And then at night, when the house cooled down, you know, uh, uh, mom would take the grocery bags, the old brown grocery bags, and cut them out, cut me one out real flat, flatten it out. And then I would draw on the grocery bag on the kitchen table under a kerosene lamp because we didn't electricity. And um, I loved to draw. And then later on, dad would get to come home for maybe a year He'd get a job and we start doing pretty good. And then he'd break down with TB again, be positive. We had to go back to the hospital again. So that went on for the first nine years of my life, 10 years. And um, I was 10 or 11. I think they got at least the garage doors down. <laughs> but um, um, so I, I was drawn all my life. And I, I lived in an area in a time where I was thinking the other day, anybody older is very old, like your grandma, grandpa, they were pretty old, and old men, women around, were probably born in the 1800s. And, uh, and they would tell tales and stories and scary stories, and they just sparked my imagination, you know. And, and people would get together at night, bring a guitar, mandolin, a fiddle, and make music and sing, and, and just under lamp, lantern light. And, um, in the summertime, and it was just, it was like a fantasy world in a way. Nobody worries so much about money or buying things, as long as you had a roof over your head and food to eat, then enjoy life, you know, and and, um, and it was, it was a neat, I wouldn't take nothing from my childhood, but as time went on, dad got better, you know, he, he was, dad was really intelligent, very well read, and he, um, he did, he did well, and I mean, we weren't rich, but he got us up to average standard of living for Kentucky at that time and we was doing okay and and then um, I wanted to go to college and, and major in art so luckily Kennedy it just they just passed a, a bill that for um, uh, if you couldn't afford a college you, to go to college you could get loans and grants so that's how I got to go to college and loans and grants and then um, done well in college I was chosen for one of the top artists um, uh, they was working on a scholarship for me for Pratt to get a master's degree, but I knew I was going to be drafted, <laughs> and I was. I got out of school in December of 70, of 70, and I was in the Army of January 71, so I was out of, I was out of school for about a month before I was in, in the Army, and um, did two years in the Army, and I um, uh, a year in Germany, which I got to see castles and everything else. I was already in, 
I got into fantasy art when I was in college and um, called it adventure art. And uh, there was no such thing as fantasy art. This is even before I'd seen my first Fazetta painting. But I found some old books. We had a lot of old books. And, and some was illustrated by N.C. White, Treasure Island stuff. And I fell in love with the way he painted power and strength. And there was a sense of adventure in his paintings. And it's like, that just carried me away. And, and the way my life was, the woods was mysterious. Like when people would come up to, to play music at night on our porch, they would come from the woods. I was young. I thought they lived in the woods. I mean, I mean, we lived in the country, but there's a little bit of fields around us. There's woods, but they. But what I realized, my mom kind of told me later on in life because um, they knew us, but they were actually taking a shortcut. If they walked the highway, it'd have been five miles. But if they cut through the woods, it's about a mile and a half. And so, so they didn't live in the woods under trees. You know, they were just normal. <laughs> young people and they they looked like adults but they were 17 18 19 years old and uh but all that just added fantasy to my life and the stories that old people would tell and um back then there was no central heating you know you either you had a coal stove or a fireplace you either burnt wood burnt coal and that was it the heat and uh and the cook you had a wooden stove in the kitchen so in the summertime, get 105 degrees, and you had to cook off a wooden stove in the kitchen, no air conditioning, no electricity, not even, you couldn't even run a fan. It was pretty miserable, but I don't know, it was just life. But all that added to, to fantasy is like I was living in a fantasy world. And uh, to an extent, especially when you're innocent and you don't know that uh, the crew realities of, of the world, you know, <laughs> and so, but that, I think that sparked it all. And then when I was in college, I saw Frida Frazetta's first Conan painting and I flipped out, but I was already been looking and going to the library, trying to find who lived in Europe, you know, it's around the time of maybe the Romans or something, because they didn't teach you that in school, in high school and in college, I've taken American history classes and, even world history, they don't touch on that. They just start out with, you know, the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, the Greeks, you know, goes goes from there. They don't talk about Central Europe or, or England or Ireland. And so I, I was determined people live there. There's a Stonehenge up there. <laughs> Been there a long time. So I'd go to the library and, and try to find it. Well, even in the books, they did, they just, they labeled all of Europe, Northern Europe, as battle axe cultures. So they weren't classified as a civilization. That came along later. But at that time, it was like they, they were nothing. They were just primitive civilization. And then I found the word Celts in a book. And I, okay, let's start tracing them. And finally, I still didn't find it in college, but I was found Vikings. And got this little bit of that. And then later on, I found a book on Celts. And it was like, after I got out of college, and it showed the Celtic designs and the weaponry and the shields. And um, I loved it. And I started incorporating that into my drawings. And um, um, when I went to TSR uh, with Dragonlance, uh, I told um, Jim Rosloff was the head of the art department, really nice guy, 
His talent was lettering, unbelievable. And so Dragonlance had to be separate from Greyhawk, the world of Greyhawk. Um, and so Hollywood uh, separate two fantasy worlds, you know, and um, sort of hard, <laughs> two, two fantasy worlds when everything goes. And I said, well, I brought a book into Jim Roswell with Celtic design. And I said, when you do the, you know, he was going to do the logo, Dragonlance. With the, and I said, put a lance to it, you know. And he said, that's a good idea. And I said, and this Celtic design, it'll separate it. If we keep this kind of design going. But, you know, nobody heard of Celtic design. This is like an 81, 82, somewhere around in there. And I was trying to introduce people to that because I discovered it. And um, and so we started trying to, or it didn't get incorporated enough in Dragonlance as I wanted it to be because the Celtic design of everything, clothing and stuff, uh, design work is very unique. And they were a barbaric people uh, or however you want to consider it. They weren't, they didn't build Rome or anything. They, they did a lot of fighting <laughs> and uh, they were perfect kind of people for D&D, you know, and um, and so, uh, but we did incorporate some when we could. I tried to, on the figures I painted for the first time, I tried to give it a little bit of a twist. So was that your first professional uh, occupation? Like, aside from the military, was TSR, oh, well, was TSR your first professional gig? No, um, it was my... Well, I worked a lot of jobs going through college in the summertime, all kinds of crazy jobs. And I left that one time and worked at a big printing company. Uh, Running the big uh, four-color Heidelberg printer or something. I got to understand printing and how it works. And that was helped in me forever in my occupation because everything I'd done was published and printed just about, you know. But, uh, but when I got when I was in the army, I spent one year at Fort Knox working as an illustrator. I was a soldier, but I was working as an illustrator in a in a building that they made army manuals. Everything from typesetting it to illustrating it to printing it and shipping it out was all done in this one building. And so I worked there a year as a soldier before I got sent to Germany. Well, they liked my work so much. And there was a lot of civilians working there, too, for civil service. And they paid quite well. And uh, I come back. Uh, they said, when you got an army, you know, do your portfolio and everything, and we'll try to get you a job here. And I did. And I, did, I got a job at Fort Knox in the same place I was. And, um, and this, we're talking about, uh, this is 10 years later, you might say, since I was in college and stuff. And um, and some of the new illustrators we were interviewing as as a year went on or a couple of years went on, I started seeing some of them with fantasy art portfolios. I was like, oh, that's great, you know, there's some fantasy art people. I wasn't the only crazy person out there. And well, by the time I got the army, there was Boris who'd come along, and I always watched, I always liked uh, uh, Jeff Jones's work uh, that was publishing back in the '60s. Uh, uh, Bernie Wrightson's drawing, I followed all the Bernie Wrightson stuff. Some of those guys were the core right then in the 60s. And when I got the Army in 71, there had been new people, of course. Leo had come on the scene and a few others. And um, 
so I worked at Fort Knox and I got up to a GS9 making back then and in, in 73, 74, 74, 75, I guess, somewhere around in there. I was making about 20,000 a year, which was, well, I kept getting raises. I got to around 20 some thousand a year. And at that time, that'd be like making 80,000 a day. It's about. I'd bought a new house and I got published in National Lampoon on the side while I was working at Fort Knox. And then heavy metal, I got probably some heavy metal. And I guess that's where TSR must have saw my work. And they called me at work and um, wanted me to do a freelance job for them. So I did and they liked it. And then uh, I'm trying to make this short. Then they um, they wanted, they asked me to, you know, to, to work for them, to move to Wisconsin. I'm like, no, I just bought a new house, I'm happy. And um, so I told them that a couple of times. They flew me up there to let me see the company. Well, that scared me even worse because I was like 32 and most of the people was like 18, 19, <laughs> and 20. Uh, and uh, the only person who's older than me was Gary. I met him. I'm like, well, there's one dude older than me. And then two, three more that was my age, a little bit older. And, and I, they showed us everything really nice. I thought, man, it'd be a great place to work. It seemed very creative. But I had we had two kids by then. And uh, I said, well, I can just keep freelancing and work on Fort Knox. It's steady money. And um, so I told them no again. So then the president of the company, which I think was Brian Bloom, or Keith Bloom, Kevin Bloom, I think. Um, he was a lawyer and he was president at the time. They would rotate who was president of the company. And he flew down to my house and uh, I picked him at the airport and being good Southerners, we fixed him a big supper, you know, we, we call it supper. We don't call, um, <laughs> we don't call it dinner, not in the South. <laughs> fixed him a good supper. And uh, after he ate, my wife got out cake and coffee, you know, and sort of sat back and talk about business. Well, he just turned right around at me and said, we want to hire you really bad. He said, how much do you make at Fort Knox? I said, 20,000 a year. He said, well, double it. I'm like, God bless. I mean, double it. And I, but I stayed cool. I'm like, and I said, my wife works. <laughs> and she was a good secretary, typist, everything of that kind of stuff. And she's working for City Hall. And he said, how much she makes? I said, she makes 12,000 a year. At that time, 12,000 a year for a woman was pretty good money. And he said, well, double it. He said, she could work for us. We got plenty of jobs like us. So I'm like, that's $64,000 or $62,000. <laughs> and, uh, and I freaked out. I looked at my wife. She gave me this look like awestruck is beyond her. So I was looking for a sign like yes or no. And she just, she just sort of like gave me a little bit of a forward nod. And I said, I said, well, what about this house? We just bought it. I'm going to do. He said, uh, we'll either buy it and sell it for you or we'll just take it over and sell it for you. Don't worry about it. And we'll wow. have a place waiting for you when you get there. I'm like, I guess you just bought yourself an artist. <laughs> <laughs> and a month later, I was moving, about a month later, I was moving to TSR and they had a house waiting for me. And, and um, they were super nice. So I really felt obligated to them and I did the best I could. And I worked 
my average day was about 16 hours a day, probably. I'm not just at TSI to come home and work till three in the morning. Two, two is about my normal bedtime. And uh, sometimes all nighters, but I enjoyed it and I didn't, and I, I didn't think it was bothering me. I mean, I stayed at, I, I dropped black coffee and smoked cigarettes. And that kept me going. I was wired 24 hours a day. <laughs> so no wonder later on I had, I've had three heart attacks. I thought I had quadruple bypass surgery. I had one stroke. I've never stopped painting to it all. And, <laughs> oh, man. The last, I just had quadruple bypass about a little over a year ago. And the doctor, he got, he said, well, your picks up pretty good. He said, I think I bought you 15 more years. I said, I'll take it, man. <laughs> and, that's um, that's a whole know. other career. Yeah, it is, man. All those, but I, here's what's getting me, man. I can't paint as long as I used to. Of course, I'm 72 years old. But after I get in a good eight hours, I'm pretty much shot, you know, just sort of brain dead. And I'm like, I'm complaining. My wife's going, I said, you're not a young man anymore. You're an old man. I said, well, in my mind, I'm the same age I always was. You know, it doesn't change. Well, if it makes you feel better, a lot of artists today feel exhausted after eight hours of work, like th that they're spent after that anyway. Yeah. So it's or not or not even eight hours. Sometimes it doesn't yeah. even take someone eight hours to get. I I work four hours sometimes. I'm like I gotta I gotta take a I gotta take a break. Gotta take a walk or something. If I work four hours, the, the rest of the day I'd be lost. I wouldn't know what to do. I really wouldn't know what I would end up drawing. I, I draw from my own, you know. Um, one of the questions that we, one of the questions that we had originally <laughs> intended to talk to you about was was burnout. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know if we need to uh, cover that too much more. You sort of, uh, you sort of addressed it, but it sounds like well, I, you don't, you, you're either immune to it or you don't notice the effects. <laughs> I think I, I worked through it all so many years. I don't know what burnout is. I worked till I collapsed just about, and then you get about four hours sleep. Man, I'm ready to go again. You charged, and uh, I loved it. And there was much else I'd rather do than to do art, you know. And um, um, I never got tired of it. Sometimes I call it hitting the wall. I'd come along and say, I've hit the wall. And she's like, Well, it's about time. You know, it's like, I'm totally exhausted. I just got to sleep. And then maybe I would sleep for 10 hours, 12 hours sometimes on a weekend lots of times to sleep and I sort of recharge my batteries and I can run that way for another week. Did you ever have a uh, repetitive use injuries like uh, tendonitis in your hands or cramping or anything like that? Yeah. I've had to have my shoulder, my right shoulder. I used to get cortisone shots in it. Now, now I found out that that's not good for you. It deteriorates your cartilage. And so the last time it was, it was about three years ago. I couldn't pick up a cup of coffee. I couldn't raise my right hand, even with my chest. Uh, I had coffee sitting over on the table and I couldn't pick it up. I'd use both hands to help me get over. And I just couldn't paint. And so I didn't want cortisone shots, but I had a friend that was a chiropractor. Well, to be honest, I didn't believe too much in chiropractor. You know, um, I'd gone to one one time and he didn't do nothing for me. And I said, well, well, this friend of mine, he was my age, and he he was a millionaire because he had like six businesses, chiropractor businesses, 
scattered in Kentucky. And I was talking to him one time. He said, the reason I'm doing it, because I love chiropractor like you do art. He said, I can heal a person. And he said, that's my life. And so I thought, okay, I'll give him a shot, you know, because here I was, my left arm was hurting because I had a habit of leaning on, on a chair arm. I, I eventually took all the arms off my chair, so I couldn't do that in the studio. But um, I leaned on this arm, so I blew this shoulder out. I painted with this one and blowing this shoulder out, but this one's worse. And I also had a hump on my back. It's called an illustrator hump. I don't know. It was just bundles of nerves. It's this hump getting bigger. I think there's even a Dragon Magazine thing where I couldn't make the issue and I just did a one page thing and I think I somewhere I put a little arrow point illustrator hump on the back of my neck. Well, anyway, I started going to chiropractor and my God, he healed me. He said, we're about to work on you for a year. I said, I'll do it, whatever it takes because I got to pay. Within three weeks, my right shoulder thing was great. And he's, he didn't really work on my left that much, just a little bit. And I went to, to him for almost a year. The illustrator hump went away. Now I could turn my head all the way around, look behind me. Um, I, it worked. A good chiropractor know what they're doing. But like he said, there's a lot of flaky ones out there. You got to get, he said, like everything else. He said, well, he knows me. And he said, you know, there's a lot of so-called artists out there. A lot of them are not very good but some are really good. He said, all life's that way. I said, okay, I, I believe you now, man. I, you know. and, well, uh, but yeah, he's kept me painting. If it wasn't for him in the last several years, I would have had to quit. But, uh, and that is uh, relieving to hear that you have. Yeah, uh, there's hope if you get the right guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and that, you know, it didn't, because some of that stuff that you're talking about could have been career ending. So it was sort of, fortunate and fortuitous been. yeah that right. you you met the right person at the at the right time yeah. um and when you can't raise your arm up yeah to get a cup of coffee and then you can't pick the coffee up the pain is so bad you know you can't paint can't draw Go yeah ahead. so so your your career um has you know been around longer than the internet has been around <laughs> um i mean that's that's to say that the internet hasn't been around for for very long I don't know. Um, it's new to me. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, certainly, you know, what the internet has become today. And yeah. one of the, the things that the internet is sort of known for, the, the cornerstone of the internet is, is social media. And uh, one of the unfortunate consequences of social media is this ability for people to share their just toxic hatefulness yeah. with the world. and we'll really try and like drag people down you know uh they'll say negative things um and artists deal with this a lot where we have to sort of navigate this minefield of of negative negativity did you ever have to deal with anything like that uh a little bit uh i think what happened to me i was at the right place at the right time for one thing. And so, and I did some of the right covers at the right time. Okay. And I blame that on luck and also um, skill too. I mean, I, uh, I was, I was the right one being chosen at the right time to work at TSR. Some, somehow, I don't know how, 
to heaven for working it all out or whatever, you know. And um, so I happened to be several times at the right place, right time, and I got to be very popular products. And um, I didn't get a lot of negativity. I'd run, in it, run into it sometimes on the, on the fringes, and I had some friends or artists that would get down. And artists can get depressed pretty easily, and you can live on high highs and low lows because your art is you. When people come by and just like, well, that sucks. What does that do to your soul? You know, it, it, it crushes a little piece of it. And if you get that negative feedback all the time, it's horrible. And I think one lucky thing, too, during those years, what was rare about TSR, most companies like that would have freelanced all their art out. So none of the artists would have ever known each other personally, really. TSR bought all the artists under one roof. So we were all working together. And most of our, back then there was no email, so there was people send fan mail. We was all getting fan mail. And it was all praise. And this is from little, from kids playing D&D, &D, and they loved it, and they loved their art. And we, yeah, <laughs> and we we understood that, and we we helped each other's spirits. Sometimes we get down just ourselves, you know, artists can be moody. And, um, but we'd, we'd, we'd build each other up, and, and, we were sort of in a protective shell. I didn't realize it then how lucky we were. I really didn't. And now I'll just, I always try to be as nice to all the fans I possibly could. Nice to everybody. If they like my work, I love you. Okay. <laughs> that means you like me to some degree. And uh, I've tried to go out of my way to be as nice to people as I can. And, I, and that's, that's real feelings, not fake. Really, I like people. I like talking to people and learning new things. And I've been fortunate in my arts taking me all over the world. Place I never dreamed I would go. I met people I never dreamed I would meet. I mean, it's been like this weird dream. And it wasn't that I was rich through all this. No, starving artists is, is a true. <laughs> when I went freelance, I realized what a real artist was. <laughs> so I went freelance in the in the 80s, moved down back to Kentucky. And because uh, my wife and I both, like I said, we got families, been here forever. And we, my wife, she's Catholic from a big family of brothers and sisters. So we moved back here and uh, built a house. Then the work, that, that reality was setting in more and more. It's like, man, you only get paid by every painting you do. And, uh, you better use your brain to figure out other ways to make money, make this art work for you. So I started getting printers to make prints. Uh, finally build up the big Epsons, you know, really good ones. And um, I just tried to market myself, tried to stay happy. Uh, I went through major depression a couple of times, almost suicidal. And, um, but I got through it. And I think the fans helped me with their, their letters and things and my family. And, and I just, uh, I was coming from the time they just, the old saying was pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, you gotta, you gotta keep going. And I did. And, um, but people have been nice to me and I've, I've tried to be nice. I hope I haven't offended anybody out there. Uh, stay politically neutral publicly, you know, I, and, and in real life, I'm pretty neutral 
on all this stuff. I just look at, let's just try to find the truth of things. I don't care how you feel about things, you know, but what's the truth? That's all it just makes. And it's weird me saying this. I want my life to understand reality and truth as much as possible, but I paint in a fantasy world. <laughs> so I guess maybe it bounces out some way. I don't know. <laughs> I live in a fantasy world, but I also live in reality. And, um, and when everything was going digital painting, I, I told my wife, I said, be prepared for some hard times. And she said, well, times are not that great now. I said, well, it's going to get worse. She said, why? And I said, uh, I'm not going to go digital. She said, why not? I said, I don't want to paint digital. I like the smell of paint. I like the texture of paint. I like everything about paint. I like doing it by hand. You're feeling it, you know, draw with a pencil, ink with a brush or a pen, paint with a brush. I said, if I had to stop doing that, somebody made me go digital, I said, I'd quit doing art. I'd try my hand at writing. I don't know. I'd do something else. And so I said, I'm going to stay painting. And I said, the other thing, I said, now these little kids that played D&D back then, you know, they're 14, I'm 35. And I uh, I said, they're grown up. They were smart kids. I know a lot of them right now are doctors, lawyers, and everything else. They're making money. And I said, when you started collecting art, you don't collect prints. I mean, you can collect prints or postcards or whatever. But if you got the money to collect original art, these people have the money. And right now, fantasy art was in its infancy back then. And you could buy great paintings, cheap, you know, a couple of grand. You get your Dragonlance painting, the original. And because um, that helped me sustain my livelihood, you know, I, I didn't want my kids to suffer and to be poor. And so I always maintained a certain good level of living. No matter if I worked myself to death, I wanted my family and my wife and everything to have a good life. And so, uh, but yeah, uh, we had about, about five years, sort of rough. I went to a lot of conventions, selling a lot of prints that kept us going. And then uh, people started wanting the original paintings. And the collectors started like, oh, okay, if it was original art, and I'm like, oh, over here, I'm still painting with a brush. And so, man, I, it really broke loose. And, uh, and my paintings are going, if I'd have had all those old paintings I sold, I would be a rich man, <laughs> but I sold them all to live. You know, I've got about ten or fifteen. Uh, I got about ten or twelve of ones I kept because I liked them, and there was more, but I had to sell some that I really loved over the years, uh, just to pay the bills. You know, something comes along like an all families, something you aren't prepared for. You need another five thousand now. So I sold the painting. I sold two to get five thousand. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, this idea of having a a, a positive out attitude, uh, looking to your fellow artists for support, right. um, especially in the hard times, you know, of which you have seen many ups and downs. Uh, over the course of that, though, have you met any of your heroes? And if so, did any of those encounters ever not go so good? You don't have to name names, but just curious. 
Well, there's two things that stick out to me. One's sort of negative, one's sort of positive. The positive thing, Frazetta was still alive when I was working at TSR. And I always thought, I want to meet him because he changed my life. Those first coin covers changed my life because I realized I didn't have to paint desert scenes of, of Indians in it or something. Uh, I could open my mind up and, and, and the world, you know, the barbarians, uh, everything, you can, Egyptian stuff, everything. You can just go, you can play with it all. And make So his art opened my mind. I loved his art. But I thought, the guy never knew me. I never met him. It would have made my life if I could have met him, you know. But I was afraid to meet him. What if he didn't like my art and said something that crushed my soul? So I didn't really go really out of the way to meet him. But I wish I could have just happened to see him and shake his hand. That's all, you know, run away. Well, the guy that did, Mike Freelander, he did um, trading cards. Uh, art for artists. You all remember a few years ago, a lot of artists were doing cards, collector cards. They do, okay. So Freelander was uh, publishing a lot of times that we published my, my cards. And he would take them over, you know, different artists. And, and he lived pretty close to Frazetta on the, in Pennsylvania. And he would drive over to, uh, to Frazetta's house and talk, and talk to Frazetta. They were friends. And Mike was my age or younger. Uh, so Frazetta was treating me more like a, a nephew or something, you know, <laughs> age-wise. But he said one thing about Frazetta, he was very vocal on if he liked the artist or if he didn't like it. He would, Mike would show him a set of cards. I don't like his art. He just, he's not getting the point. He's not doing it. And Mike said, he was tough. And he said, a lot of artists he was knocking was really good artists. And said, so but he was really, he liked what he liked. He said, so I brought him over a set of your cards. He said, I had a, a box of cards, all of them, and they were still shrink wrapped. And he said, uh, uh, I brought you some of Elmore's cards. He and Mike was telling me this. He said, uh, look at me. He said, now I like that boy's work, that Elmore. He said, he, he knows what he's, he's hitting the right chord or hitting the right spirit or something. And he said, set that box over on the mantle, over on the dress or whatever it was. He said, bring me another box so I can look through it. And so he brought him another box. And he said, he said, you were one of the few that, of the artists he produced that Frazetta liked. And I wasn't trying to copy Frazetta, you know. I mean, when I was in college, I, I did one piece in pastels trying to copy his art. And I stopped and said, you know, you can never beat a guy's own game. I can't outdo Frazetta. I can be a shadow, I can be a copy, but I don't, I wanna be whoever I am. And I don't know what my style is, I'll just keep going and it'll develop. And that's what I did. I never tried to be like anybody. I was in, influenced by N.C. Wise, Frazetta, and a few other artists, well, a lot of them, but at that time. So you really, you're like a sponge, you absorb everything. And then it comes out to you. The time I was the most dejected, there was certain artists that I was aware of his art, loved his art. Actually, owned a couple of his black and whites, about four of them. And I was learning to ink. I really wanted to ink better. And, and when I worked at Fort Knox, everything was done in ink. So I'm going to be able to, to ink with pens and brushes, just as great as like this particular artist. 
and um, and he was about my age. Because I remember reading when I was in college, I was looking at an art. And Jeff Jones, another one that really influenced me. But anyway, I was looking at this artist. This is not Jeff Jones. I was looking at this artist's work, and I, I, I realized he was so good. He didn't. He got publishing jobs when he got out of high school, seventeen, and you know, when I was seventeen. I went to college, and, and um, and anyway, I was at Dragon Con one year. And I, this is terrible years ago, and I had my little table set up by myself and stuff. I noticed he had a table about three tables down from me, but he wasn't there. He was one of the special guests, and I wasn't a special guest. I was in my own way <laughs> but uh, I thought oh my god I'll get to meet him I'll actually get to meet him and every once in a while he'd stroll by once a day he'd stroll by to this booth he'd set a big line with form and he would sign stuff and then they'd disappear he just shut it off he has long hair cool leather jacket kind of thing so of boots and this good looking girl is always with him on oh my god he God, you know, he's just cool. So I got the courage to go down and see him. So he was sitting down and I said, my name's Larry, I'm I got a boost up next to you, you know, two boosts up. But he just looked at me and this good looking girl was sort of hanging on him. And uh, I said, uh, I've always loved your art. You know, you're the greatest inker and penciler and everything in the world. I love your work, love your work. And he just blew me off like I was nuts. I was a fan. I wasn't talking about art. I was a fan of his. But he was rude. And so I went back to my table, just dejected. And that same time, I met Jeff Jones the next day. Jeff Jones, the nicest person in the world. He just talked and talked. And there was a line. He would like tell him, you know, somebody waiting behind this guy, you know. But he was really great. I'm like, oh, I worship Jeff Jones and whatever. But that, Artist, it really killed something in my soul, and I, I didn't buy any more of his art. I still liked his inks. You can't help it. There's inking and drawing. And I didn't really see him hardly at all. If I didn't see him in the convention, I just ignored him. I didn't want to get hurt again. And so after 30-some years, I guess, I was going to a convention in Texas, and the guy picked me up at the airport, and I hopped in his car, put my suitcase in. He said, we got to pick one more guest up. I sit in the front seat. Uh, so he's driving around the airport to go to another gate. I said, who are you picking up? And he said his name. I'm like, oh, God, I don't, I don't want to talk to him. How do I, what do I do? I but he gets in the car, and uh, I didn't turn around. I just sort of waved. That's it. And the driver, he was talking to me, oh, good flight, yeah, blah, blah, blah. So he's driving about 15 minutes, and the guy said, Larry, is that you up there? I said, Thought, how does he even know my damn name, you know? <laughs> and this was probably 10 years, 12 years ago. And uh, and he said, is that you? Yeah. And uh, he said, I always liked your work. You're, you're doing really good work. And this guy, same age as me, but he, he'd been in the business before I had. But he looked rough. He wasn't the same guy he he, he, he wasn't really healthy and, and uh and by the time we got to the hotel i felt sorry for him <laughs> <You know? 
And, uh, but I'm glad that happened and we talked. And I told him that, yeah, I've always loved your work since I was a kid. And uh, well, we was both kids, same age, but since I was in college. But, but that's been the worst I was ever hurt, but it come out okay in the end. And the greatest thing is if it actually liked my work. And that, those two things, um, I don't know, it just worked out for me, it just made my life more complete or happier or whatever. But I've tra- never, because of that incident, I was never rude to a fan, ever. If I was, it was accidental, uh, a misunderstanding, but because I know what it felt like. And I don't want anybody to feel that way. If they like your work, be happy. Be happy somebody likes your work besides yourself. Well, half the time you don't like your own work that much. You know, I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, it makes me wonder sometimes when, when people are, you know, not being nice about it. Maybe that's just a reflection of, you know, they're overcompensating yes. for something that they don't like about them themselves. But yeah, um, something, you know, for the people that are that are watching, uh, something that they uh, really wanted to know when you mentioned that you had kept a few of your paintings, some of your favorites, they wanted to know which ones those were. Well, I've got, it was called Eyes of Autumn, which is a Dragon Magazine cover. It's a witch and a scarecrow. It's on tour right now. It's an Owen Rockwell Museum. They've had some kind of fantasy art tour. And I'm not going to get that painting back till 2023, I think. Then uh, I have a line to Life Giver. That was a Dragon Magazine cover. It's a, a giant walking away in the snow and a girl trying to heal a guy. I've got that one. I've got um, another Dragon Magazine. The reason why Dragon Magazine covers is they would just give me a topic and I was free to paint what I wanted to. And so I love doing Dragon Magazine covers. And so like the one, um, the other one, it was about magic weapons. And that's one that is like this stone there and a sword floating. And there's like a Viking guy, barbarian guy, just sort of touching this floating sword with a stick. You want to touch it. And then there's two other characters around there. It was sort of down in that ruin like in a hole where this is at and that and some of those were my best paintings that time and some of those like Eveline I was looking at that painting the other day and I thought you know sometimes you're painting out of your gourd you're 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 painting too good you're painting a level beyond what you're capable of that happens a few times in your life I don't know what makes it happen but I was looking at that painting and even good Really close, looking at brush strokes, everything else. I don't leave a lot of big brush strokes. I just look and I was painted. Like, if I painted that today, I couldn't paint any better. And there's about three or four paintings I've known, and some, some of them I don't, some of them are gone. But I know that if I painted today, I couldn't do any better. And you know, we're talking 30 years later of the experience and stuff. And, uh, but sometimes you were just, well, I guess I was paying so much, almost like getting on a high, and and something builds up, and 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 all of a sudden you you turn out paintings like even when I painted that, I looked at it like, holy cow, how did I do that? It was like it was like you was having a dream, and you finally woke up and like I didn't paint that, did I? You know, now I wasn't doing drugs or nothing. <laughs> I said, you can't do drugs and crank out that much work, you know. I didn't, I didn't even drink back then. The only time I drank well, was at a party, you know, social drink. That was it. Uh, so I always stayed sober all the time. And um, I was smoking and 
drinking coffee, black coffee, that's doing more damage than anything, I guess, over the years. But, um, but yeah, sometimes it's just been, I look back and like, uh, some pain's like, how did that happen? And how did I get that idea? You know, I don't know. Well, there I, don't oh, to, I don't think I'm, like, people treat me too good. And uh, I don't think of myself as that. I just think of myself as a guy that's worked really, really hard, come from a good family that worked hard, big work ethics, look for the truth. Don't judge anybody till you know who they are. Don't be prejudiced about anything until you understand what's going on. Those kind of things is the rules I followed. And, and, and I worked with this old Mexican guy at Fort Knox. Loved him. He's retired army. And I learned more from him about life than anybody described. But a lot of the things I find myself saying today, and one of them I say the most, and let's see when I'm doing a painting sometimes, you don't know, you're, you're trying to paint something you know how to paint. You know? I mean, that sounds stupid, but you know what you want in your mind, but you know how to paint it. And Oscar was his name. He'd always say, do your best and guess the rest. And he said, but do your best and then guess the rest. <laughs> and so that's been my philosophy. When I'm doing a painting, I do my best. And then if it's beyond my comprehension, you know, or by my experience, it's like, well, I'm just going to guess, goes this direction. <laughs> and you'll know soon enough if you guess wrong, it starts looking like crap, like a backup now. Let's go another direction. But do your best and guess the rest. And, uh, and that's what I've always tried to do with people, with art, and uh, and uh, life, I guess. And, and, and I, I always thought of myself, just average guy, like life is like a battlefield. And there's shells going and bombs going on. And you're going through life. And you, you, you see some of these old films, stuff where there's having a battle. How does anybody survive that battlefield? But there's all these lucky ones that just, don't really, they get grazed and they get knocked down or fall in a hole, but they get up and keep going. That's the majority of people. And with me, I just like, I missed a lot of big bullets. I missed a lot of bombs. I got winged a few times, but all in all, kept running full speed. And the goal was just to do one good painting. <laughs> and I think you'll never know when you do that one good painting until after it's done and you're looking backwards. Uh, uh, do people say you're going to do a masterpiece? And no. Well, I know I might write down my masterpiece. I don't know if I'll get any better or what. And, um, but that's sort of my philosophy on life. Larry, you had mentioned before we started that uh, you were going to be a little short on time. Uh, I don't, I don't know where you're at now. Do you have time for a couple more questions or do you have to get going? Hey, Betty. My wife was in here a minute ago. Now she's gone. Uh, Okay, let's do one more anyway. I sure. Uh, no, no, not at all. That's awesome. Um, well, I guess I'm curious to know, you, you talked about working 16 hours, even eight hours for a lot of people is a long time. And we've talked, um, you know, before the recording a little bit, you know, and how you can get into these, these zones, these states of mind where you're just like, you're forgetting everything what's going on around you um and that can be tricky for some artists to to get into that that state of mind and that kind of focus and attention with their work do you have a, a process 
we're getting into that zone or have you just always sort of naturally been prone well, to that? I can tell you my habits. Um, yeah. I come every morning and I, you know, got my black coffee and I sit in front of my painting and usually I don't feel like painting. You know, I mean, if, if it's like, how do you feel? I, well, I go back to bed or I go do something else. But I sit there and I look at and I just look at where I'm at, what I got to do, what might be wrong already. I don't think about, I've got to start painting this morning. I don't enter my mind. I'm just looking at painting. And sometimes you come to realize, I mean, I don't know what happens. You don't even realize it, but you're painting. Okay. I look at it and somewhere in the process, I've started painting. And with that really knowing that, or uh, that happened to me a lot when I just leave the palette out and cover it up and I just started into it, you know, but but now I'm trying to be a little bit neater with that, but I'll sit there and, and I say, I don't feel like painting. And I'm looking to painting, looking at the painting and then all of a sudden I'm mixing paint and I'm like, and I start. And then um, used to, I just didn't want to stop. And there's one more level that you could get into, and it was real rare. Maybe 10 times in my life it happened. And if you've been painting for like four hours, nobody's bothered you. Nothing's bothered you. are just like my wife worked. When we moved back here, she worked with City Hall again. She's working. The kids are at school. I'm here. got everything locked up and signs of, you know, Larry's gone. Don't disturb me or something. And, um, and you'll be painting. And you're getting deeper into it. And all of a sudden, I think there's a name for this. I can't remember what it is, but something clicks. You're almost having an out-of-body experience. You're watching yourself paint. And and you're recently hitting all the right colors. They're mixing perfect colors. And, and it's like your body went on automatic. The painting, The painting took over or the painting part of you. And you're almost like your consciousness is back away from you and you're watching it happen. And you're even thinking like, this is so cool. Don't ever stop, you know, but you don't think of it too much or it'll quit. You're in a zone and it's like a, there's like an alpha waves or something happens. And it takes a lot of, so many like hours or so of concentration and you get there and you get in this zone. But anything can break it. Doesn't take much. Somebody just knocks on the door and some boy walks in, talks to you, it's gone, it's over. And uh, they're still working on their studios. <laughs> but um, but that was the two levels. One was just the painting would pull me into it. I'd start painting every day. I didn't have to dread it. I'd just sit there. In a way, you could be dreading it, but before long, you're just painting with hardly realizing you're at it. And the other one's when you paint a long time, nonstop, then you get in the zone and it's like a like your your sort of consciousness is floating over you or something. And it's not like I'm looking down at me or any of that kind of stuff, but it's it's like your awareness seems to be separated from what you're doing. I don't know. It's just and I've talked to a few people that get some zones like that and they say it's great, but anything, a loud noise, you gotta stop and look around, it's gone. You're out of it. And it takes hours to get there. And and uh, but that's really neat. I haven't experienced that in a while because too much going on all the time. You got to have a good four-hour run and no interruptions. 
and then to get to that zone, whatever it is. And there are so many op opportunities for interruption more so yeah. these days than ever. Um, well, I know that you had said just one more question, but can I slip in a quick, it's a yes or no one. All right. Did you ever play D and D? Yeah. Yeah. I okay. I would like to play more, but it's too time consuming. I mean, I guess painting is time consuming. So I had two things I'll have to do, but both required a lot of time. So I chose painting, but I like D and D. Loved it. All right. We ran well, about a four year campaign when I worked there. Oh. All the artists. Well, that is a that's a fantastic piece of, of history, Larry. We, we won't keep you anymore. Really, okay. really, we appreciate it so much, Larry. Um, I I won't push my luck, but maybe we could do it again in the future. Yeah, maybe be calmer. <laughs> Not so All much right. going on. Yeah, and sounds. Yeah, I, I, that'd be good. All right. Well, fantastic. Right on, man. Well, I'm gonna wave goodbye to you. Say thank you again, right. and I wish the best for you. All right. You guys take it easy.